Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Alright, it just keeps on coming. We can't get enough of these guys. This week is the noted, most excellent producer-engineer, Stephen Lipson. So Stephen's career, uh, his first big thing of note is that he produces Driver's Seat by Sniffing the Tears. Remember that one? I still love that song. And then it, that leads to becoming a member of Trevor Horn's team. Uh, he's there working on all the same things that Trevor is for a while. And they collaborate on a lot of things. We talk about some of it in here. We get into propaganda. In fact, he produced or worked on the most recent ex-propaganda album, which came out last year, which didn't feature all of the members of the band, but some of them, including Claudia. And then there was also Grace Jones, uh, Simple Mind Street Fighting Years. By the way, I promise you guys won't... <laughs> I didn't mean for that, those two albums to keep coming up as often as they do in here. I don't even like you. I mean, I like them, but I don't like them enough to talk about them all the time, even though that's what it sounds like. So I promise this is probably going to be the last time you'll hear me mention either of those albums for a long time. He eventually goes out on his own, and uh, this leads to, well, he's done a lot, but the stories that we get into in here are priceless. Uh, there's the Stones, excellent Stones story. Bruce Hornsby, and the night he and Bruce Hornsby went and saw Frank Sinatra, there's a sort of funny but also sort of tragic story about Whitney Houston in here. He also works very closely for a long time with Annie Lennox. So Annie's featured in here. We close it out with Cher. Along the way, though, he forges a partnership with Hans Zimmer and works very closely with Hans on almost all of his movie music. In fact, Steven was on, and they call him Lippy, by the way. I can't remember if I refer to him as Lippy in this interview or not. Lippy uh, works with, is a member of the team with Hans that wins the Oscar for Billie Eilish for this song right here, No Time to Die. That's why we're opening it up with that. In fact, he tells what, it's kind of a lengthy story here at the beginning, but it's fascinating because you realize all of the hoops all the gymnastics everybody has to do to, in order to sign off on and approve a song for a big budget Hollywood movie. It is so interesting. Anyway, we get into all of this stuff and a lot more. You're going to love this. He's one of my dream guests. The sixth of the seven Stevens. The seventh one will be up in a few weeks. Anyway, I'm a huge Steve Lipson fan. He called me from a studio in London. All right. Now, since we have been emailing, did you win an Oscar? I might have. You yeah. mean you mean Billie Eilish? Yeah, you're on yeah, that one team, right? Yeah. yeah. What? How did you get involved? What did you do? I produced it with Phineas. You did the song. Yeah. Uh, how did I get involved? I, oh, it's it's a kind of convoluted story. Okay. Um, I work with Hans Zimmer a lot. Right. And he called me one day and said, uh, as Hans does, some cryptic question. He said, do you like Aston Martins? That was his, his, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Hans, I like Aston Martins. Why? Oh, uh -huh. I've been asked to do the Bond movie. Uh -huh. And, uh, I'd love you to work on the score, but I'd also like you to produce the song. 
And I said, is there a song yet? He said, well, there are a few contenders, but come over. He was in London. He spent a lot of time over here. I'll play you a song. So he played me No Time to Die, the Billy Phineas song. And um, he said that, that there are loads of contenders. This is one of them. And I, I like it. Or I, I can't quite remember what he said. But whatever he said, the uh, implication was it wasn't a goer. It, mm. it wasn't a cert for the film. Mm. And he said, what do you think? Um, I always have a problem hearing things the first time. Not always, but mm -hmm. nine times out of ten, I hear something, I don't know what I've heard. Mm -hmm. I have to hear it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. A bit primitive. The brain isn't, you know. So I said, I think it's good, but of course this should be in the movie. This should be the song. Why? Well, because it's Billie Eilish. Because Billie Eilish fans probably don't know anything about James Bond. It's a complete no-brainer. It's got to be Billie Eilish. You know, there are all these other contenders, but it struck me that she was at that time, which was probably 2020. I, was that just before? When was the pandemic? February March 2020. 20, yeah, February, March of 2020. Yeah, so this would have been November, December 2019, mm -hmm. and she was absolutely at her peak. So, so every, she was on the, everyone's lips. So I said, it's, it has to be her. I met with Barbara Broccoli. Oh. And Anne Hans. Uh-huh. And she asked me what I thought. This, this of course, history has a, has a, a habit of, of sort of changing. So uh -huh. this is my memory. Could be completely wrong. She asked me what I thought, and I said all of those things. It has to be Billie Eilish, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And she went, great, let's go ahead. So there was a conference call with Phineas, Hans, probably but whatever, Barbara and myself. Anyway, we talked. He sent me over his parts, which were his demo very similar to the finished item, but much longer, much longer, obviously no orchestration. And there was something else that was different. Oh, it didn't have a climax. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so I realized what I had to do was shorten it. I, I had to find out how to get a climax mm -hmm. and how it should be orchestrated. Yeah. So I did an edit or two, I can't remember, one or two edits, whatever it was, uh -huh. and also thought it needed tempo changes, mm. which is quite complicated. Apart from the fact I had his logic file, but didn't have all the sounds. So if I did tempo changes, he would have had to reprint certain things. Mm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I did this, uh, sent it in. I, I think Phineas was a bit bemused. He probably had no idea what who i was but assumed i was part of uh -huh. the team right and assuming that thought well i better sort of go along with it i don't think he went along with with the, the, those two ideas excitedly it was mm. more pra pragmatically sure sure you know, he, he thought well, okay anyway yeah. so that was that i got all the parts back that he'd reprinted at the right tempos and then we got into orchestration and hans had a guy who he thought should orchestrate it i think it was matt dunkley and he did an orchestration i went in to hear it 
-hmm. three of us were there mm -hmm. hans wasn't happy i wasn't happy it's not that matt did a bad job it's probably that he got bad information mm. you, you know wires get crossed at, sure anyway and then so the idea was hans would do an orchestration and i'd said to to matt look a lot of this is good let me when i get home i'll call you and we can run through it and mm -hmm. so we had loads of phone calls and did another orchestration so we ended up with three orchestrations gosh air studios was booked phineas and billy and their parents came over for the session and when um orchestras are recorded certainly for film uh -huh. sometimes for records it's done in passes so everyone will play the arrangement and then it'll be broken down so it'll mm. be broken down into long strings short strings short brass long brass any percussion any woodwind yeah. any it's right so there might be six or seven passes and each pass the engineer jeff foster records all the microphones and there are about a hundred microphones and I'm telling you, this is, this is technical and I'm sorry about that, but no, this I'll is get... how, this is the, how it's made. Okay. So, so there might've been for argument's sake, seven passes, uh, with various alternate takes and three arrangements. So that's 21 passes, uh, of a hundred tracks each pass, right? so it's a lot of information yes. but jeff uh, i don't know if he always does it but i ask him to do mixes while he's recording mm. so there were stereo mixes of each pass and come christmas i suggested that i, I couldn't make head or tail of the arrangements i didn't think we'd nailed it at all but uh phineas was very excited i think phineas and billy were excited because it was so over the top yeah you know uh, a huge huge orchestra at, right. at air studios for their song and their songs like this you know uh -huh. they're very intimate and the orchestra is like you know <laughs> yes. yes so they it was quite an experience for them so i sent phineas all the stereo files and um in the meantime and so he he chopped and picked bits then they wanted to hear it over the new year and i was away and i only had my laptop and i put something together and uh, and suggested more orchestra i put more orchestra and they anyway the net result was they hated it so we had a conference call and i said uh, i didn't say anything actually uh -huh. it was uh phineas barbara hands me and someone else uh, whatever there were quite a few okay. people on this conference call and and i kept very quiet and phineas was going I, I i don't like it either and and the bond people are going no no it's not it's doesn't do it and i waited till the very end and at uh, the very end i said guys how about this i'll look at this and i'll start from scratch and i'll feather the orchestra in very carefully and delicately and i'll make it work and phineas thankfully he piped up he said that's great that's perfect do that okay wow cut uh -huh. so it took me i can't tell you how long it took me to figure this orchestration <laughs> as well as getting new parts done uh -huh. uh, because i didn't think we had everything so we had a whole load of, i got a whole load of new bits done 
either with virtual instruments or what it doesn't matter how and then i put it all together and sent it in and everyone was happy apart from daniel craig oh who yeah who so he has thought, a say in this too oh yeah sure okay. it was his swan song bond movie okay uh oh oh in the meantime somehow whether how it happened whatever i can't remember but billy hit this high note at mm. the, in the last chorus mm -hmm. and of course that was the killer moment uh -huh. you know that that knocked the whole that gave it a climax so i put it in i was very happy about it and then i got a message from phineas billy doesn't like the high note oh. doesn't want the high note in so i went okay and proceeded probably to ignore the instruction <laughs> you, you know not not rudely but just right. i left it in and right. built the whole thing up around it so uh -huh. that that was the climax orchestrally sonically and then everyone's happy and word comes back we've got to get daniel on side mm. and barbara called me and said he's coming to london tomorrow this is on a saturday he's coming to london tomorrow uh, can we meet at Hans's apartment to play it to him? And I said to her, you know what? If we really want to nail this, he should come to my studio. True. Because I have a unbelievable sounding system. I there. believe it. Yeah. So he should come. Where is it? It's in Wilsdon. Wilsdon is the armpit of London. It's awful. <laughs> it whatever. It doesn't matter. What time? She said, well, he's flying in at seven. He'll be with you at eight. This is after a few to and fro phone calls. He uh -huh. agreed to turn up eight o'clock in the morning in Wilson. So I got in, I can't remember five o'clock, five thirty, And I sat there in front of the, my console listening to the mix and thinking, how, how am I going to sell this? And I came up with this stupid idea, which was that climax to push up a huge amount. So the whole track would play, and when it hit that moment, it would be like over, like three times as loud uh -huh. so that he got his climax. And it took a while to do because you can't just turn it up. Things have to arrive at that point mm -hmm. gradually. Other things have to hit. Anyway, so I figured it, got it right, set the volume for the song, so I knew when it hit the climax, it would be insanely loud. Yeah. Right? That was my plan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he shows up with Barbara and he's sitting where I am now, you know, in front of the console. And Barbara says, um, do you want to say anything? And I said, no, bollocks, just play, hit play. And he's sitting like this, looking down with his eyes closed and it goes through and finishes. And Barbara is on one side of the room. I'm on the other and she's pale, you know, uh -huh. thinking <laughs> if he rejects it, we're stuffed because we don't have time. Wow. Now. Little did we know there was a pandemic coming. Yeah, um, true. Uh, so uh, he, all he said, he didn't look up. He just said, play it again. So I played it again and he looked up and he said, he said, I love it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Barbara lost 10 years. Wow. You know, and, um, it was great. So was, that's how it wow. sort of how it happened. But it took months to get there. Yeah, obviously, this is this is an epic tale that you're weaving here. So let me ask you a couple of things about this. I and 
I, I, I have a million things I want to ask you about, but I'm really hung up on this. I mean, Phineas, what is it like working with a kid, basically? I mean, he's like, what, 21 years old, 20-something years yeah. old? And you're this legend. And no, you're no, taking- he's, he's, he's wise. He's, That's he's, what I'm- Phineas is really good. That's what I'm asking. Yes. So he is I mean, this wonder kid. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're details, but the details don't matter. As uh-huh. an overview, Phineas is, is really, really good. And, and our interactions were very macro. They weren't micro. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as if he, he uh, talked about the detail of anything. Yeah. Uh, nor did I. In okay. other words, I accepted what he'd done. And vice versa, I suppose. Yeah. It, there was no confrontational conversations really okay. at all. But you're not, no part of you, and this is, a, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is going to be no, but no part of you is like, why am I taking my P's and Q's from this upstart? No, I've been in no, the business no. forever. No. You know who you're I'm talking ne- to? No. It, none of, no, no, never. Never, never. would I. Okay. I'm working on a movie at the moment, and the uh, composer is in his thirties and, mm. and he's great. And I am happy to, I'm happy and honored to be part of the team. Yeah. Yeah. I'm when, happy to be a team player or in charge. It true. doesn't bother me. It was really, I think partnering up with Hans that brought you in so deeply into the music, into the movie music world Completely. that you're in. Right. Yeah. When yeah. did that relationship start? Uh, dark Knight rises. Oh, so whenever that was, Okay. That was the yeah. first movie I messed up for him. <laughs> <laughs> I highly Completely. doubt it. I did. Right. I did. How'd you it, do that? Because I didn't know what I was doing and I thought I did, but right. I didn't. But that's one of the biggest movies in history. So obviously it didn't matter too, too much. Well, oh, I ended, yeah, kind, kind of, ex- ex- I, I, I ended up getting help from Alan Myerson. So even though I ended up mixing the score, I I don't know how it, I can't remember how it worked out and it worked out fine, Uh but my first offering was wholly rejected. Okay. And, and I found out very quickly what I was doing wrong. Uh So I righted that and realized I was spending time on all the wrong things and looking at everything the wrong way. And anyway, it worked out fine in the end. Okay. So I, back to the original question, you personally don't have an Oscar. Did they only give, I think they only give out like two or is it four? There's a limit. No, I haven't got an Oscar. Okay. But you're instrumental in the winning in that. Yes. Okay. Sure. So I'll, I'll take it. Not that I've got an Oscar, whatever, you know, Uh it's Okay. Okay, I just wondered if your bio could say Steve Lipson, Oscar-winning producer. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, let me ask you this other thing. Now, another newer uh, job of yours that I love is the new X Propaganda album.
And uh-huh. the, the original album, Secret Wish, is one of my favorite albums ever. And so to have them come back like they did with you, it's almost like getting as much of the original team back together as possible. What? How did this happen? Why did it take so long? Well, we missed Michael uh, and Ralph, but... Uh, even though we tried, it just didn't work out. We could couldn't. We didn't all get on the same page. Uh, yeah. oh, I, I'm. I've been in touch with certainly Claudia always. Okay. Uh, she lives close by, and she's lovely as is Suzanne. And we've we've remained in contact. And uh, a few years ago, uh, we all met actually with Andy Richards and Michael and Ralph and the two girls and myself got together. Why don't we do a propaganda album? And it was looking good. And then I think, I can't remember what happened, but Ralph and Michael removed themselves. They, They weren't interested probably because I could surmise why it doesn't matter. But Michael sent one song, which was nice, did a bit of work on it, but it, didn't really get anywhere. It didn't feel right somehow. And Andy was busy or whatever. And, and so for some reason I sent Claudia a a bunch of ideas that I, I had percolating in my Mm -hmm. stash. And let me um, ask one question about that. When you have ideas, when you say ideas like that, are they in a folder on your computer marked potential propaganda project no 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 just ideas and you they could go to anybody but when they call you think that's a good idea for propaganda yeah well generally they go to nobody yeah well yeah Yeah. uh and uh, an idea you know an idea can be anything an idea can be a sound Mm -hmm. or a chord sequence or rhythm or whatever not not a finished song Uh just a little snippet of something and I would, I think I sent her maybe eight or 10 or something. She picked a few out and sang on her phone and sent me what she was singing. And then I would flesh that out a bit more. Mm. And then she and Suzanne came over here into this room. It's a very small room, but, and we messed about. And then for whatever reason, she, uh, Claudia got her friend, John Williams, who she's worked with in the past to come over. The and John so, Williams, not the John Williams. What the c- composer? Like the Star Wars guy. Yeah. No, no, no. John Williams. He's okay. a he's a producer. He he okay. um uh, produced groups okay. like the Beautiful South or the House oh, sure. Martins. Or, Love them. Yeah. Okay. It's such a lovely man. And so the four of us will get together once a week, or if I wasn't working, and if they weren't working, and we just put get little ideas together. And then when they weren't here. I just, when I had time, I'd just load the song up, have a look, fiddle about, on we go. And um, that kept happening. And then at one point, I said, I would have said, we've, we've got enough here for an album, probably. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me try and sequence it. So I sequenced the album, which took about five minutes because... <laughs> kind of seemed easy anyway and um, self-explanatory and they loved the idea and then we had to find a name and that was very complicated because michael and ralph didn't want the name propaganda used Mm. 
And then we needed a deal and we lucked out in a way of getting uh, Universal just bought ZTT. So it yeah. seemed like a, a smart move. And they signed the project for a two album deal. Really? Uh, and they, yeah. And they wanted me to be part of it. But it, I, I didn't really feel I could commit wholeheartedly. What does being, part of it mean beyond producing the album? Do they want you to like play out on tour or something like that? Yeah, I go on tour with oh, them. Oh wow, if I can. really? Okay. I, I, yeah, I've played some gigs with them, and I mean, I suppose what we did was very much the people. You know, mm. if they went off and did something without me, it wouldn't. It'd be different, really. Okay. Okay. Because mm. we have a history, yeah, a complete understanding of each other, mm -hmm. and. It, in a way, nothing's easy, but it's v so easy recording Suzanne and Claudia for me. It's so easy. Good. It's like it, it's nil work, uh -huh. and, and it's because it's a it's just a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Try do this. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Thanks. You know, yeah. it's like ten minutes to do wow. a vocal. Wow. So there is a second ex propaganda album contracted for that you guys will have to deliver at some point. I suppose so. Okay. Wow. Well, that's a lot to look forward to. Yeah. It needs a, uh, maybe uh, we discussed an idea. Okay. We're totally uncommercial, but who cares? I mean, maybe <laughs> may, what I'm actually not, who cares? Maybe it should be uncommercial. You know, I'm just happy to yeah. see you guys back together again. How did it compare to a secret wish? And let me, okay. If this is too sensitive a question, you tell me and we can cut it out. But I, there is a, I've heard that, I think Gary Langan told me this. I could be wrong. Uh, he said, few people work with Trevor more than once because it's a lot of work. And that album, my understanding is that Claudia, well, Propaganda, much like the Frankies, had kind of a bad experience on ZTT. And... Um, never fully felt like they got paid or got their credit or whatever was the original album, which I love so much kind of a negative experience. Ultimately, do you even know what I'm no, talking no, about? No, no okay. not at all. It okay. was great. Trev, Trev uh, asked me to do it for whatever reason. Uh -huh. I don't know. He, 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 he'll have his re reasons. Maybe he was busy doing foreigner or, or yeah. whatever. Anyway, he asked me to do it. They tried loads, asked loads of people. Nobody was interested. And then it, I was like their last choice, not last choice, but whatever. They didn't think it was. And so I just rose the challenge really. Mm -hmm. And, um, was lucky enough to be in a situation where I had access to a, a lot of equipment and, a you know, a, I, I would say it's not the right word, but a, but budget wasn't, there weren't budgetary restraints, mm -hmm. which of course came back to bite us. And it wasn't, it wasn't like spending money for the sake of it. It was, um, trying to get the album as good as possible, yeah. which was also the case with the Frankies, but they, uh, for some reason, I, I don't know about the contracts. I'm not that interested mm -hmm. in all in, in the contractual problems mm -hmm. that anyone had, but I do know that in, in reality, both artists, the Frankies and propaganda, the, the one thing I could never understand was why they weren't 
grateful that this team had put so much time and effort into their records. Mm -hmm. all, all I felt in the end was bitterness because it had cost so much. Yeah. And I know it had cost a lot. I get that. And may, as I say, maybe the contracts were unreasonable. I don't know. And I couldn't possibly comment. All I do know is we all bust a gut trying to make yes, their records did. as good as possible. Yeah. And, and in a way it felt like no thanks, you know, I want to leave the label now, yeah. whatever. Okay. It just, it was, it was sad that. Yeah. Um, Brian Nash from Frankie has been on here and he wrote a whole book basically about this kind of thing, never seeing any money and feeling like all of the, um, any money they would have made was spent, you know, elaborately or whatever, but it's a, those are, those are elaborate sounds when you, how was Andy involved in the first, that secret wish album? Cause Completely. I get the feeling it, it was like you two are almost the people coming up with all of the music, right? No, no, Michael have to give him his due. And he and I have had loads of disagreements about this, but everything emanated from okay. him. Okay. Not necessarily song song structures, mm -hmm. but all the chords, mm -hmm. some of the songs in their entirety, and whatever. But Andy and I spent a great deal of time in a black room <laughs> working on on that album. Yeah, like a lot of time. Yeah. Okay. What was it? Those six years being on Trevor's team and working on all those projects, was it was that a highlight of your career? Was that more work than you've ever done? Was it just different work? Was it just a chapter? How do you look back on that period? And how did you even get involved? Was it sniffing the tears? No, I knew him because that's a sort of open-ended question. I had a studio, which is a bit weird, at a very young age. I ended up as a 50-50 partner in a studio. Hmm. Uh, and not for any reason other than I was doing guitar sessions for a guy who did jingles. And um, one day I said to him, I, I must have been 21 or 22. And I said, you know, it's such a shame. I don't know what goes on with all this gear because my guitar always sounds terrible. I, if, I, if I knew how to operate the gear, I could make myself sound great. And he said, well, it's so funny you should say that because I've just bought a building. Uh, would you be interested in building a studio and, and running it? And it took me about a nanosecond to say yes. And he gave me a budget of 15,000 pounds and exactly to the day, one year to get it together. Wow. And I, I knew, uh, I, I knew literally nil. Yeah, nil. Yeah. And so I had a, a year, I didn't know uh, what, what the equipment, what equipment I needed. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know anything about acoustics, wiring, how to get builders. I knew nothing, but I had a year and 15 grand and I had to live off it oh, as well. Wow. Oh, goodness. so anyway, I cobbled this thing together and then the day arrived and there was a session and somehow I got through it. But th what happened was for some strange reason, the studio suddenly became booked mm. and one of the acts was sniffing the tears.
Uh, and by this time, it was being booked 24 hours a day. And with the money we were earning, we could lease a bunch of better gear. Mm-hmm. And that everything was getting better. And Trevor used to come in and play bass at the studio oh, doing sessions. Okay. So I didn't know him well. And of course, his his to be wife, his wife yeah. to be, Jill, I knew Jill. because I've worked at Psalm. Okay. Not not a lot, but I kind yeah. of knew her to say hello. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, anyway, I fell out with my partner, became a freelance engineer, which is purgatory for me because engineering was never the idea, you know, it never occurred to me to mm-hmm. be an engineer. <laughs> and um, I was supposed to be a record producer, even though I didn't know what they did. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, all, all uh, this is going on. I was engineering for all these acts who, whoever would have uh-huh. me, you know, earning a, some kind of living, but desperate to be producing. So all my downtime, I'd be making records at, at whatever studio I could get time in. Uh-huh. And I was right climaxing on an album when a phone call came through, would you go an engineer for Trevor for two days or three days? I didn't want to go and I didn't want to go because I told myself I hated his records, which is, it was just jealousy, you know. What records had been out that you heard that you decided you hated? uh, Dollar, uh, ABC, uh, Malcolm McLaren, and Buggles. I love those. Oh, I love those. They're all brilliant records. (laughs) But but I said to myself, I hate Uh him. I don't want to work with him. Anyway, so so they said, but they're going to pay you really well. You should go mm-hmm. all right i'll do three days so i showed up and i i took my guitar everywhere just uh-huh. because you know a guitar case with one pedal in it you know it's right. all a bit hokey <laughs> and um showed up and with the mindset that i was going to ignore him just do whatever i wanted to do and if he didn't like it he could kick me off uh-huh. and it didn't bother me uh-huh. but he loved it he loved it because I was just taking care of business and not uh-huh. asking it. Do you want this? Do you want that? Yeah. I was just doing whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. And he liked it. And then when he heard I could play guitar, uh, that was that. And all of a sudden I found this is actually really good fun because mm-hmm. I'm doing whatever I want to do. I'm not getting the credit. That's okay. Right. Because I'm not in charge. It's fine. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. I, you know, f- basically I had, to a large extent, free reign. Yeah, it was amazing. And so however long I was there, the work was hard, and I learned a great deal, a huge amount. Mm-hmm. I learned what what to do and, or, and what not to do for, from, mm-hmm. for, for me, because we're not all built the same way. But it was amazing working with him. The, the, the opportunities that were there. Uh, there was one time... When I was freelance engineering, I met met this guy called Chris Kimsey. Oh, who, sure. Yeah. I'm he, supposed he, to interview him, too. We're emailing. Yeah. Oh, he is the loveliest, loveliest man. Good. He's had to cancel the last couple of times, so we're going to do it in the new year. Oh, well, send him. My, I, I never really see him or speak to him, but he's just the most fabulous guy. Okay. Um, and I had such a, he came to Ridge Farm Studios where I was a sort of secondary house engineer. They call me if they needed someone to fill in. And there was this group from Jamaica called Native that he was producing. They wanted an engineer. 
And I said, I'll do it. And Chris and I got on like a house on fire. Nice. In fact, the whole band, it was the most brilliant time. And he called me after the thing, after the album was finished, said, do you want to come and help me do the Rolling Stones? And I said, yeah, of course. He said, all right, the money will be terrible. I'm engineering, so you'll have to assist me. I said, that's fine. It's uh -huh. whatever is needed. So three months in Paris, in Pathé Marconi, oh. Oh. uh, starting at midnight kind of starting at midnight it was often yeah. later uh, a hell of an experience but i had to be in the same hotel as everyone because uh -huh. the transport the whole thing uh -huh. and um i was earning less than the hotel bill so come <laughs> christmas i said to chris i can't i'm subsidizing the rolling stones uh -huh. there's something wrong here right. uh, i need more money and he told mick who hadn't spoken to me once during this whole time. He, he came up to me. First time he spoke to me, he said, I hear you want more money. And I, I said, very politely, I said, yeah, I, I can't afford to uh -huh. be here. And he uh -huh. said, we, we can get anyone what we're, for what we're paying you. I said, okay, oh, you, I, I can't afford to go. I won't be back. Uh -huh. So that was it, left the thing. And come a new year, uh, Chris said, I, I need you to come over for a few days to help set up. And I said, great, it'll cost you, you know, uh -huh, whatever. And uh -huh. I, I got three days worth of money. But anyway, anyway, cut to working with Trevor, who one day says to me, oh, Mick Jagger wants to meet with me. He wants us to, he'd always say, wants us. It was really, he was, he was great like that. Very he goes, inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, as, as whatever. And, yeah, um, right. Okay. <laughs> so he, he said, uh, wants, wants to do a solo album. I'll go and meet with him. And I said, God, you won't believe what happened with him. And I tell him the story uh -huh. before. And then he goes for the meeting, comes back from the meeting. And I said, well, how, what happened? No, we're not doing it. I said, why aren't we doing it? I said, because I told him I've got an engineer and he costs 1500 pounds a day. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't prepared to pay. <laughs> oh, that album so, you worked on, I believe, was Undercover, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Now, okay. So, do you can you tell me a story about that album? Undercover the Night, I think, is one of their great singles that doesn't get talked about enough. No, but that was Chris Kimsey. Oh, that was all him. Okay. Yeah, it's on my list to talk with Chris about, but I wondered if you had. Stories. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he will tell you. Uh, I, I don't know what he'll tell you, but as far as I know, uh, what, what I was involved in, nothing was recorded. We filled up eight hours of music, eight hours of tape every day, but I, I didn't hear anything. Uh, he must have, because he <laughs> sampled a whole load of shit and turned uh -huh. it into undercover. Yeah, I thought true. it was quite extraordinary. Wow. He was brilliant with the band. Yeah. Chris, wow. absolutely brilliant. The way he sort of kept the thing flowing in this mm -hmm. really organized yet inconsequential way. So he, he never interfered, but kept the ball, kept it moving. I, I can't speak highly enough of how he dealt with it. Not, not in, um, you know, when we think maybe when some people think of a producer, they think of someone who, who's musically very involved and makes suggestions that that didn't seem to be his role so much as mm. as just keeping the thing going yeah. with mick and keith at each other's throats well That's my story I, I have a million stories but the one thing that that struck me 
above everything uh-huh. was they weren't getting on. And, uh-huh. and from what I remember, they'd each, each night, they'd alternate between whose idea they'd look at. So one night it'd be Mick's idea and one night it'd be Keith's idea because they weren't uh-huh. communicating properly. So I remember it was whoever's idea it was. I don't uh-huh. know. And the way they they're laid out in this huge room, Keith right at the end with his pals around him, and he's sitting, and he's you know the, before everyone starts playing, there's a bit of chit chat going on, and and Charlie's you know making sure his jacket's on straight, and Bill's <laughs> looking about, and Ronnie's making sure he's in tune, and Mick's dancing around, you know like. Uh-huh being fit uh-huh. uh, and Keith is just sitting back in his chair with his guitar and every now and then playing a chord that's a <laughs> deafening volume, you know? <laughs> so anyways, it comes to starting and Mick starts it's really good. Actually, he starts sort of dance, getting the tempo by, mm-hmm. by dancing what he feels the tempo should be. And then he issues, he's got a PA and he, he gives a whole bunch of, instructions not instructions but he would say things like okay so we'll start with the first bit and we'll go around and i'll count us into the next bit and then you know that's eight bars and then we'll go back to the first bit and then i'll count us back in to the next bit again okay everyone got it right okay all right here we go and so he'd be dancing you go one two a one two. and at some random point absolutely not in time with him Keith would start playing the riff oh, as okay. if to say, you don't tell me when to start. Right. So he'd start and then Charlie, no, it started. So he'd be in Ron, who'd only been in the band for 200 years. The new boy would go, fuck, I better start, you know, do an impressive, something impressive. Right. And Bill would be looking around going, what's going on? So, and then finally he'd come in. So uh-huh. if you think of the Rolling Stones songs, oh man. Perfect example might be uh oh god, it's probably Brown Sugar. Yeah. Starts yeah. with the guitar riff, uh-huh. right? Then drums and the second guitar. Uh-huh. And that goes on and then the bass. And I wonder <laughs> whether <laughs> I, I always wonder whether their songs begin like that because of the <laughs> characters in the band. I don't That's know. That is it amazing felt, imagery. I yeah, love it. it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. I it's know. just quite a nice I love thought. It. I talked yeah. to uh, Steve Lillywhite recently, and he was saying he quickly, when he got on into working with them, he said, I quickly realized there was Team Keith and there was Team Mick. And the more fun was to be on Team Keith. And, yeah. uh, so he would, uh, he sort of placated Keith a little bit more, kind of kept him, you know, worried a little bit more about making Keith happy, I guess, because yeah. keeping Mick happy was kind of too much work. Yeah. Keith, a lovely, lovely man. He was warm and embracing. Charlie was a bit prickly with me. Mm-hmm. Bill Wyman didn't really communicate and Romwood was, uh, a bit out there. He was a little bit on cloud, whatever it was he was taking at the time, which everyone was taking, but, but Keith was very embracing and, and warm. And I think he, uh, invited me, everyone to a party in his apartment. His father was there first time ever 
He'd hadn't seen his father since he left home. And his father was sitting on a stool in the corner of this huge room watching this circus that his son was part of, you know. Like, I, I remember thinking, he, God, he's looking at, he must be like, you, you know, <laughs> his jaw on the floor. Yes. yes. Watching this thing happening yeah. in front of him. It's like Caligula. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I'm imagining, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it was. When Gosh. when I went to Keith's party, I remember it was in was it Ruda Rivoli? It doesn't matter where it was. A kind of funky area of Paris. Uh -huh. In he had an apartment there. And as I approach the street, you can hear strains of music. And uh -huh. the nearer I get, there's the old bottle uh, you know, a few more bottles, <laughs> a few bodies. It's like a cartoon, right? Yeah, yeah. And then finally you get to the entrance where he's on the first floor and uh -huh. it's chaos at the entrance. Finally, go up the stairs, avoiding the bodies and the empty bottles, uh -huh. get into the sitting room where there's this long table with Keith, like King Keith at one uh -huh. end, you know, with his feet on the table and loads of people there. And uh -huh. his father at the other end of the table, just looking you know, looking. It was it's extraordinary. This Absolutely is extraordinary. Oh my gosh. I don't know how to top those stories. I do want to, I wanted to ask you about, um, speaking of albums like the propaganda album, they feel more uh, pieces of what the producer had in mind than maybe than what even the artist had in mind. I wanted to ask you about Slave to the Rhythm. My understanding is that that's you guys just kind of created that whole thing the whole grace comes in sings some bits ian mcshane comes in narrates some bits but all the music is out of you and trevor's head and bruce woolley i believe is involved well he wrote yeah like, and simon darlow bruce and okay. simon wrote the original song and then okay then the three of us rewrote it in new york Okay. And then we spent 11 months trying to come up with a better version, yeah. but didn't. Yeah. 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 Is that, I mean, was that album built basically almost entirely from scratch by you guys? Yeah. It was us trying to get it better. Okay. But the whole and, album, not just that one song, the whole album. No, that's like what I'm a, saying. Oh, the okay. whole album was yeah. us trying to get the single okay. better. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's what it was and not succeeding and then not knowing what to do with it. So right. it ended up as an album in okay. a nutshell. I mean, yeah. it's a bit more convoluted than that. Yeah. It's a weird one. It's like Grace's 
biography, musical biography narrated by Ian McShane or something like that. Well, actually, it was Jill's brother. Oh, wait, yeah. who? John Sinclair. Isn't Ian McShane, though, the, the he guy He says, narrated? ladies and gentlemen, Grace, that Grace Jones. That's all oh. he says, yeah. <laughs> and the one who goes, I first met Grace. Uh -huh, the, uh -huh. Yeah, that's John Sinclair. I didn't and, realize that. <laughs> and if you listen to it, I, okay. I think I'm right in saying he was emulating Jean-Paul Goud because that's what he was reading from. And I think I'm right in saying he starts with a French accent and then forgets, right. he forgets that he's supposed to have a French accent <laughs> <laughs> very quickly. And none of us really noticed. We all went, oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, that's an odd album. I haven't listened to it for a while, but I have it. It's an oddity, but it's, uh, it just, it, it, you probably heard this a lot. You guys, what you created was this ear candy that has never been matched by anyone ever. It is just so tasty and delicious, all of it. And that album is just, that's what it is. It's like an entire serving of candy with very little, you know, vitamin C or sustenance in it. It's all candy, but I love it. Right. Okay. I want to ask you about Simple Minds. I yes. think you're involved on the uh, Street Fighting Years album. And, and Real Life. Okay, Real Life. I love Real Life. That's one of my favorite Simple Minds albums. Street Fighting Years. I talk about this. I love Simple Minds. They're one of my top 10 favorite bands of all time. And I find the Street Fighting Years album so strange and interesting because it was the absolute wrong album from an Amer from an American perspective, totally for them agree. to make for them to totally make at agree. that time killed all of the momentum they had built up on once upon I a time. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay. Funnily enough, had real life come out next, that's exactly yeah. that's exactly what I was going to say. The real life songs should have come out. See the lights and real life and uh, banging on the door and yeah. let there be love and stuff. Had those been the tracks that followed yeah. up once upon a time that band would continue to have been huge i agree completely they wow. lost momentum but they but did. you know what that's what they wanted to do and full respect to them really really okay yeah sure if that's what they you know they're fine they're okay, okay. yeah i've it, always wondered i heard i think that they were having some serious writer's block around that time and so i wondered if those songs sound so big and bloated because they didn't have very many ideas. So what little ones they had, they had to make bigger. Maybe. I mean, I remember clearly uh, when we first heard what they, we agreed to do the album before hearing anything. Oh, okay. And we went up to their house in Loch Ernhead, which is, you fly to Glasgow and drive for an hour north. Okay. Okay. And, hearing what they were doing i remember distinctly thinking what is this this yeah. was the first thing we heard was is the opening song on it called street fighting is i think it is i it is and i love yeah. that song
golden tide Years are golden once again My thought returns to you, my dear young friend rest is doesn't hold up to that oh i like soul crying out oh that's true that's a good one yeah i like that but if you think of the start of uh street fighting years not the bass thing and but but the chords and and it was so sort of desolate and slow and empty and i remember thinking what what have we got ourselves into here Mm -hmm. how are we going to make this into a record Mm -hmm. I remember thinking it, and I know Trevor thought it because he he was he kept going on about you need a single, uh, which is how Belfast Child came about. What's interesting is the Belfast Child was the single over there and was really huge. Over here, it was this is your land. just fell like a thud well it would yeah that was there was a video to it and everything no one cared no one wanted to hear that song no i get it i i was surprised i'll tell you what else i liked on it except it was a little bit hard to get was kick it in ah okay Uh uh-huh
I there are some moments that. on that album. It's just not the album they should have made right then. No, if they had I know. flipped real life and street fighting years around. It'd be but you totally see, different. real life came about. Real life was needs must, if you know what that expression means. Because Mick 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 McNeil had left, uh-huh. and which put Charlie in the writer's seat, and. I don't know what happened before, but I know Mick was very integral. I know that that Mick would play parts, Jim would grab his parts as vocal melodies, and then Mick would come up with more parts, you know. Mm-hmm. He was really important. And he suddenly the keyboard player left. Yeah. And and so four of us went to Amsterdam for I don't know how many months. Jim Charlie, myself, and my engineer, who I worked with for years and years, Hef, and we we rented a room. It was like a boiler room in the basement of a studio complex there called Visselord. Hmm. Uh, why, uh, whatever the drugs may be, but anyway, we were there, and um, we c- wrote the album. I got I got writing credit on two songs. I remember at the end of the album, Jim said, "We need to sort out your writing credits," and uh, it was left to the very last moment. and uh-huh. And I I thought, oh well, this will be a three way split. Obviously, mm-hmm. I got writing credit oh. on two songs. Oh, Whatever, I, you know, it wasn't a discussion. I wasn't yeah. going to taint my relationship with them over that it, yeah. it was just not not the thing fine. to do i was surprised but fully pragmatic yeah. about it and accepting yeah but, was mel gainer anywhere to be found on either of those albums uh not i don't think he was on street fighting years but he he was on real life okay that's what i thought i was trying to remember the timeline his timeline on that okay yeah i remember he came over to to amsterdam once mm. for a couple of nights to see what was going on have you spoken to him do you know him yeah he's been on the show oh he's the loveliest man but my my take on him he he, he used to make me laugh all the time Mel. Uh-huh. all right all right okay you go yeah what's going on then hmm? uh-huh. yeah, it's all a bit and uh so he came over and uh we whatever in the studio get back to the hotel it's late i'm going to bed he says no 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 come come on let's do some uh you know some stuff uh-huh, uh-huh, so i go uh-huh. to his room and he would do a, a lot of drugs uh-huh. and um i don't go to sleep i'm in my room completely wired and i write I write a manifesto for the album. I'm in high speed. I've got a notebook and I'm just writing point one. This, uh, uh, I'm writing this whole list. This and is a I, Jerry Maguire moment. <laughs> then come eight in the morning or as soon as I thought was, was appropriate. I call Jim and Charlie. I go, right, right. We need a meeting immediately. <laughs> Get downstairs. I'll meet you in the, in the lobby. So the two of them weary, they get downstairs and I sit them down. Like a right, okay. Here's I've been up all night. I've written my list, okay. <laughs> and so I look at my list, and I go right. Point one. <laughs> no, no, no. Point two, right? And I go through this list, and it's complete garbage. And uh-huh. and so and they're looking at me like, huh? you've got to say to this, <laughs> yeah. What? As I said, right. We've just got to make a really good album. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
It was mad. You woke us up at 8 a.m. to tell us that? Yeah. Now, anyway. Okay, one, one last question about that. Did they, was real life a response to the reaction from Street Fighting years? Did they go into nah. it thinking, we got to return, we got to go back. We went a little too far. We got to make songs that can be played on the radio. Let's go back to what we were doing. No? Nah, not at all. Okay. okay. Oh, wow. I could just talk to you for hours about those two albums. Um, okay, we should talk about Annie Lennox. Because you have yeah. a long-standing relationship with her from Diva to Medusa to Bear. And How more. Did that rela- and, and more. Sure. And more. How did that relationship start? It started because I knew this guy from long before I met Trevor called Simon Fuller. Yeah. And Simon Fuller managed a group in the either early 80s or late 70s, whatever, called The Adventures. And he asked me to work with this group. I have no idea how it came about. Um, anyway, I did, my dates are messed up. Fine. But I did one song with this group. They're an Irish group and lovely people. And it was a cover of Monday, Monday mm-hmm. by, by the Mums and Papas. Yeah, that's who did the original. Yeah. 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 So we did this cover. I, I, I loved it. It was great. I loved all the chords we came up with. And anyway, nothing happened as expected. And I never heard from him. And there I was doing, must've been real life. And I was up in Scotland finishing the simple minds album and a phone call. Someone says, Oh, there's this guy on, on the phone, Simon Fuller. I think Simon, oh God, you know, can I, uh, I better take the call. I'll take the call. Okay. Pick the phone up. Simon, hi. Hi. He goes like really excited. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. I'm really in the middle of it. He says, this won't take long. You won't believe what's just happened. I've been asked to manage Annie Lennox. And the first thing I thought of was getting you to produce her album. And I nearly fell over for many reasons because one of the reasons was that when jill sinclair was looking after me she said to me one day who would you like to produce if you could produce any anyone who Uh would it be and i i said to her that that girl in the eurythmics i love her not the guy the girl and she said i remember she said to me fat chance you know no chance of that happening Anyway, so, wow. so he, he, he said, come, when are you coming down to London? And of course, for me, I don't, you can't imagine, I'm producing Simple Minds, who at the time, in spite of their lack of success in America, one of the biggest bands in the world, mm-hmm. and I've just got a phone call to produce Annie Lennox, and I'm thinking, I've died and gone to heaven. Yeah. Can't believe this. Anyway, I fly down to London, exhausted because we're doing late nights trying to get this album finished go in to her uh, go to her house and she she's very welcoming mm-hmm. proper she's annie's quite proper and she said well shall i play you some demos yeah play me some demos she plays them to me and i wasn't jumping up and down i was just uh, that as I said, I hear something for the first time. I don't know what I'm hearing, really. What am I listening to? You know, I, I, I'm not good at it. I need to hear things, as I said, a few times. And I kept saying, yes, I like that. That's nice. That's nice. Anyway, leave, go home. Next morning, Simon calls me. She doesn't want to work with you. Why? 
she doesn't think you liked her music. <laughs> and I said to him, oh, God. I said, look, what can I do? I love her music. Uh -huh. I just wasn't effusive because yeah. I explained to him why. And he said, you better call her. Here's her number. So I called her, and it was just a weird call. I said, uh -huh. I, look, I'm so sorry. And da -da -da. Uh -huh. well, anyway, and, and, and then we started work in her house where i'd been to meet her and i set no a studio up at the top of the house uh -huh. this this funny little studio it, it was great it was wow. amazing this wow. time and that's where walking house. on broken glass and everything comes from that period yeah yeah everything in this little room at the top of the house We, there was myself, half her, and and a very very close friend of mine at the time, Peter Vitesi, who was a genius keyboard player, coupled with being Scottish, which she was, and being the funniest man on the planet, which <laughs> always helps. Yeah. And and so the four of us were up there, just you know making yeah. this album, which Amazing. we. We had no idea. I remember my manager at the time said, um, this is a, this is, what did he say? It's a poison chalice because this might be a disaster and you're going to be responsible for the disaster. And I said, I'm prepared to take that risk. Right. You know, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm going for it. And then Simon and I went to see Clive Davis, mm -hmm. who was in Paris and we took the Eurostar, I remember, and we, got there he listened to the rough mixes and his response was um and he's very daring he said she's very daring i'll give you a uh jermaine jackson cover or something mm. that maybe I, I think i urge you to get her to do and then he paid no attention to the album until it went platinum in america of course of course oh my gosh oh my gosh yeah so what was the spark then for Medusa? If she's just had this big success with Diva, whose idea was it to do a covers album? Because sometimes, as successful as that one is, sometimes people do covers albums because they don't they need to do something quickly or they're out of other ideas or something like that. Don't know. Uh, and not only do I not know, but I wasn't asked to do it. Oh, uh, I thought you were on Medusa too. No? Yeah, I ended up doing it, but oh, okay. I wasn't asked to do it. What happened was she started it and Simon called me and said, would I do a mix of 
the first single off mm. her next album, and that was um, uh, no, no More, More I, I Love You. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I listened to it, and I said, no, I, I'm not mixing this. I, mm. I don't think it's very good. I'll mm -hmm. do it, but I'm not going to mix it. Mm -hmm. And so Annie said, well, what would you do differently? And I came up with my idea, mm. and she said, oh, okay, this is good. Let's, re let's reconvene, this time really? at my house in Mallorca. And so all the gear out yeah. to a little outbuilding in up in the hills in Mallorca, and we made Medusa out there. Wow. So I, I kind of wheedled myself uh -huh, into that uh -huh, one. Uh -huh. And in, in the meantime, I think we did a load of live stuff and TV yeah. stuff. And so everything was fine. And then the next album, Bear, I think that was all to do with her getting divorced. Uh, and probably. because I knew her soon-to-be ex-husband or mm -hmm. ex-husband, I don't can't remember quite where it was, and everything surrounding it, we we met, and she 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 came to see me. That one we made in my studio, mm -hmm. and uh, she came to see me, and she said she said, "Look, it, this is not going to be easy. Everything on it is sad." Oh, and wow. I said, "I." I I needed a gag. <laughs> my my gag on Diva was the guitarist has left, so let's not have any guitar. Mm. But on this one, uh -huh. I said, well, let's make the saddest album anyone's ever made. <laughs> and so she went, yeah, great. And every morning she'd come in early uh -huh. and talk, you know, it be break down, basically. Yeah. It was a very, very trying wow. time. And then when we were mixing, I can't remember where we mixed it. Maybe at, at the studio. I don't know. We we disagreed on a, a lot of stuff. Really? And and I think that's probably down to familiarity. Ah, uh, uh huh. You know, you know when you get fam very familiar with someone. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. This is my my take on sure. it. Sure. And 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 I could be wrong, but I think when you get very familiar with someone the niceties sort of take a bit of a yeah. back seat and you yeah. say what you think. That's right. You don't have to be polite anymore. Kind yeah. of. Yeah. And I, I, I suspect that's what happened. Certainly. I, 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 I felt I was like that. Yeah. I disagree. And, and it started on Medusa actually, because she wanted to do two reggae songs. And I said, you can't do reggae. It's not, <laughs> You're not, you're not a reggae artist. I want to do reggae. I'm going to, I'm, you, we're not doing fucking <laughs> reggae. You know, it's not happening. And we had a huge argument about it. Really? And then finally, yeah. And then finally she said, all right, all right, all right. We won't do reggae. At which point I said, oh, fuck. All right, look, let's do one. Let's do the Bob Marley one. And I'll come uh -huh. up with an angle. <laughs> and she went, oh, no, you know, she's going, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Oh, no. Did yeah. that bear, was, the, was that the last time you two worked together? That kind of began? No, the, the well, yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of, except she had two singles or w whatever, a couple of songs that she did with yeah. Mike Stevens, who's her MD, okay. and asked me to mix. And uh, I, I never, I don't know, I didn't really get them. I didn't yeah. really understand them. And it's then, funny. go ahead. No, no. And then, and since then, we're, we're in pretty much constant touch. Okay. But 
but th there's no point in us working together. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting when you were talking about Bear being like the saddest record, and I thought that's so funny because the stuff that came after that, I'm even blanking on the name. It's sad isn't the word, but it's almost like it got, she went so soft and like adult contemporary, the, the stuff sort of just became boring to me. I, and I shouldn't say that. I love Annie. I'm like you. I love Annie, love the Eurythmics. Glad she's in the Hall of Fame. But the Bear album is so almost the last album with any blood in it. Oh, to me. you know, the, the next album she did with the guy whose name I always forget, who did uh, uh, that Alanis Morissette album. Oh, Glenn Ballard. Glenn Ballard. And, yes. and I remember hearing it. And being furious, I was furious when I heard it because there was one song on it that I listened to, uh, Ghost in My Machine or something. I think it was called Ghost in My... Whatever it was called, uh -huh. I heard this. I thought, he he's just not done any... This is huge, this song. <laughs> nothing's happened yeah yeah <laughs> yes yeah the song is the album's called songs of mass destruction yeah it's that's just, it it's just kind of snoozy i'm afraid yeah, what, what she that? deserves better what what are the uh, is there hang on songs of yeah mass. let me look it up i don't know that i've heard that album the whole way through or if i have it's been a while ghosts in the in my machine that's yeah. it that one yeah and it's yeah. got this great riff in it don don't 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 don and and i remember hearing it for the first time thinking what's he done that on he's done it's <laughs> like a this is nothing but it could be mega this yeah. track could be so good yeah. to this day she could redo that i thought it was a really strong song thrown away and and it put me off the album unfairly i have yeah. to say i i gotta I never... go back and listen to that okay i wanted to ask you on the on i don't know if this is even real bruce hornsby hothouse album you i believe oh, yeah. are credited with special effects no I'm, a, no I'm actually a huge bruce hornsby fan and i would never have put you two together what did you do with bruce hornsby i can tell you exactly what i did with bruce hornsby my okay then manager said oh uh you're interested in working with bruce hornsby i said you've got to be kidding bruce hornsby yes i will <laughs> cut an arm off to work yes. with bruce hornsby yes okay so we're uh, two weeks it's organized two weeks so the flight's booked hotel's booked hef and i get on the plane we arrive in williamsburg check in show up at his house most gorgeous house most gorgeous man with such a lovely wife and Mm. I think he had twins at the time. Mm. 
And he goes, hi, very nice to meet you. I go, fabulous to meet you. Honor to be here, you know, all the stuff. Uh -huh. And he goes, but why are you here? And I said, what do you mean, why am I here? This, this is, um, I'm here to make a record with you. Well, I finished my record. He goes, what? Uh, I'm saying, what were you talking about? You finished your record? Yeah. Oh, there's been a miscommunication. I said, somewhat. We're here for two weeks. What are we going to do? And so he thinks, you know, for a while, and he goes, oh, well. Anyway, we we, we have the best two weeks. Really? Uh, we, do, we do one song, a bit of, kind of one song called Swing Street, I think okay. it's called. Okay, uh-huh. I don't know what we did, but I have to <laughs> special say, effects. No, it wasn't whatever it was. We uh -huh, did some stuff uh -huh. and had the best time. Had, yeah, we we had, it was brilliant. We had the best. Hef and I and Bruce. I know we we all had a great two week period. I have no idea what happened, why we were there, but it was excellent and that was that <laughs> i imagine a great time with bruce involving just a ton of good weed no you're kidding no. it was, might oh. have been he plays basketball a lot uh, he does yes he does his son and, is a really good college player i believe oh is that right mm -hmm. he yeah. he uh he and his wife one, one day one of the days we were there he goes Fancy seeing Frank Sinatra? Yes. He goes, great. We've got the best seats in the house in oh. in Richmond, Virginia. Let's go tonight. Yep. So Hef and I get in the back of the car, and it's I think he had it was a big American uh -huh. could it, I don't know what it was, a big uh -huh. saloon. And uh -huh. we're in the back, like the children sitting in the back of the car. <laughs> and and he goes, We better get some food on the way. So he stops off at that. What's that Mexican food place? Chipotle, uh, Taco Bell. No, Taco Bell. He stops <laughs> off at Taco Bell, right? Orders food, gives us food in the back. And we are like the kids in the back of the car. Eating this it was brilliant. Anyway, we get to the theater mm -hmm. and we have the best seats in the house, like four rows from the front in the middle, four wow. seats. Uh -huh. And everyone's you know waving at bruce it's all it's uh -huh. bruce hornsby because he was big news around there yeah and then the gig happens and the most extraordinary it was the most extraordinary gig because frank jr was the conductor oh, okay. his son 
Uh, and Frank Senior had obviously lost the plot completely by this point. And he, do you know what mic technique is? No. What? Well, okay, mic like, technique. Okay. Yeah. You explain it. Yes. So Holding you the get, mic when, back, you know, closer. Or when not you something. go loud, you yeah. pull back from the microphone. But his mic technique had gone berserk. So, <laughs> so when he was going loud, the mic was sort of a, a mile away. Uh-huh. And so Frank Jr., knew this was going to happen so he'd get the orchestra to play quieter in the loud bits so oh, we could hear no. bruce <laughs> right it was all or gone tits yeah. up it all gone the wrong way it was like an upside down concert like ridiculous anyway so this is going on and it gets to my way uh-huh. and uh, way yeah the I end of the first chorus way. yeah he gets to the end of the first chorus and the band start the second chorus, second verse, but he's not singing. And he's sitting on a stool and you hear him on the microphone going, Frank, Frank, get me a stool. And Frank's <laughs> he's sitting right, on Frank, a stool, sitting on a stool, right? <laughs> he's been for a stool. drinking what looks like water, obviously vodka the whole uh-huh. night. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. And, and so, uh, he, he, Frank, junior he turns around he's still conducting and he goes you're on a stool dad you know get me a stool he says keep saying get me a stool and uh finally frank and the stool go like this goes right collapses falls on the floor and the sequence of events that happened after that were cartoon like the whole audience stood up together uh-huh. going <gasps> and it you heard like how many thousand people standing with a big intake of breath simultaneously oh my god unheard of it was oh brilliant gosh. and the orchestra stopped playing one by one it just sort really? of it out until finally you know and then the rhythm stopped and you heard you know on the violin <laughs> right silence the paramedics come on and people are taking pictures and going, come on, we love you, Frank. And, but <laughs> the picture taking was a little bit weird. Right. Um, and, and then finally they get a wheelchair and an oxygen mask uh-huh. and prop him up in the wheelchair, put his toupee back on <laughs> the wrong way. Right. <laughs> so it's all crooked and they wheel him off. And he waves to the crowd as he's being wheeled <laughs> off. And that was the end of the gig. Gosh. The emotions running through my brain at the time. It was a little bit like 9-11 in its own way. I kept thinking, I've just seen Frank Sinatra die on stage. You know, that was the first thought. And then, oh, no, he's, he's, and he's up. Oh, well, the gig's <laughs> over. And then everyone's after Bruce. And you're thinking, yes. I'm thinking, why? We've just seen Frank Sinatra <laughs> nearly die, and you want an autograph. What the fuck? <laughs> it, was, it was the weirdest evening. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. <laughs> oh, these yeah. stories are gold. My face hurts. Um, okay, I got two, two or three more. Um, one of them, you worked with Whitney Houston, I believe, on the Preacher's Wife soundtrack, right? Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is that that was a very fraught experience and that was kind of the beginning of some of her downfall. What was the, what did you witness in working on that album? Guns. Really? Like oh. what? Oh, uh, 
Oh. Oh boy. That was the worst experience imaginable. Oh no. That experience. But bless her, she's no longer with us, so I don't feel bad talking about it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. What happened was that song, we'd done a version for Annie, and I don't know, it must have been for Diva. I don't know. It was a reject. And somehow Clive heard it and thought it would be good for Whitney. So I juiced it, figured out a way of doing it. And I said, I, if I'm going to do it with her, I need a key. So can I get hold of her? I'll get her to call you. She didn't call. So I called Clive. Can you get her to call me? She didn't call. Went on for weeks. She wouldn't yeah. call. Finally, he goes, okay, she's ready to uh, receive you so we're booked on a plane and it was concord for some reason clive decides that hef and i should fly concord he said you fly concord because then you can come and see me first hmm. thinking, oh okay <laughs> uh we're in the lounge we've checked in phone call whitney's not ready come next week oh we uncheck in go home and you can imagine it's quite exciting you know going on concord to record sure. whitney houston is a bit of a moment yeah yeah so that all falls apart go home next week same thing happens third week we're on but by this time i've decided i don't want to go concord i'll uh -huh. go concord back because we'll be in a rush then but yeah. i don't want to go concord there because i'm not that enthusiastic having time to see Clive. Yeah, I'd rather yeah. just go straight to the studio. Yeah. And if we take a normal plane, there won't be time to see him. I didn't say all that, but that was right. my thinking. Got it. Anyway, we get to JFK, we check in at the hotel, we get in the car, and she lived in a place called Mendham in New Jersey. Okay. Get to the house, and she's basically, it's on a massive sort of, estate like a sort of beverly hills ish is huge area mm. i think it was gated and she had two houses one was her house and one was the studio and i remember the studio which actually came up for sale recently had an olympic length pool there's a name for it it's very thin but long oh like a lap pool that's exactly what it is a lap okay pool. yeah so we walked past that into this amazing studio huge control room 
boiling hot. So oh. I walk in and I go, uh, can we put the air conditioning on, guys? No. What do you mean, no? Whitney doesn't like air conditioning. Okay. We're there. It's seven at night, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is midnight for us. Yeah. She doesn't turn up till one in the morning. Oh. Which is six yeah. in the morning for us. Yeah. And we've been sitting in this room, sweltering. Baking, yes. For six hours with no food. Oh. Right. She shows up looking like no no makeup, but mm-hmm. in a in like a ro- like a, a boxer in a robe with uh. a towel around her neck white towel like she's ready to get in the ring uh-huh. uh, with bobby brown mm. and a load of his pals oh and bobby and his pals sit in the back of the control room and whitney no hello nothing as uh-huh. normal as that so, so play me the track i play in the track it's the wrong key and i said whitney i've been trying to get hold of you for about three months to discuss uh-huh. the key well, it's the wrong key. I said, well, I figured it. I listened to all your records and I think it's the right key. Uh-huh. Actually. Uh-huh. And I think you'll be able to do it and you should give it a shot. So she's already angry about yeah. the key, even though the key was fine. So she goes out, she doesn't know the song at all. I don't even think she heard it. Mm-hmm. Luckily I printed the lyrics, mm-hmm. but she didn't know the song yeah. and what's going on is she keeps complaining about the headphones and the headphones are what we're hearing. The headphones are fine, but she's complaining about them. So she can't hear the song. She's complaining about the headphones. And every time she complains, Bobby, who's sitting at the back of the room and all him and his pals have all got guns sitting on the table. Right. Uh Uh He says to Hef, my engineer, uh, he goes, I know what she, what's, what's wrong. Do and he he instructs Hef what to do, which isn't right at all. It's like yeah, he's yeah. winding the situation up until yeah. finally she picks, takes her headphones, throws them on the floor, comes into the control room and stands over Hef. Hef is the most the nicest person on the planet. He's he's. so accommodating and warm and friendly and helpful. And he's shaking by this point, right? Of course, because she's been screaming at him and Bobby has been screaming at him and there's uh, guns in the room and friends and 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 so she stands over him and screams some weird instruction that doesn't make any sense at all. And then in a, in a huff walks back into the the studio and I say to have, some whatever i would have said you know uh-huh. turn her up a bit or something yeah. or give yeah. her a bit of re- whatever some yeah to make it different so as she walks back into the room bobby goes usual line i know what's wrong and i turn around and i said bobby it seems you don't know what's wrong if you wouldn't mind just sitting quietly at the back i'll sort this out which was like saying bobby will you shoot me uh-huh it, but but it couldn't go on yeah yeah right so she starts singing the wrong thing and everything that she does he goes stop stop and he goes babe i love that why don't you do that as a backing vocal 
And I'm thinking, we have no, we have nothing at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Literally nothing. And he's fucking everything up here. Yeah. This guy. Yeah. yeah. Eight in the morning or something, she goes, I've had enough. And I, I, we were meant to go home. And uh, I said, well, we're going to have to come back later. You are? Yeah, we haven't got the vocal. Do you think you'll know it by tomorrow? By later? I'll try. Oh. Come back. Same bullshit, you know, midnight, oh, one o'clock. No. Right? She shows up. We are shattered. Yeah. And somehow we get some kind of performance out of her. Uh-huh. Uh, the odd line here, there, Bobby, yeah. please be quiet, Bobby. We need yeah. to get the vocal. And we get something, and we're all fucked. Can't do any more. Oh, and I, she comes into the control room, and this is eight, nine in the morning, and she says, okay, do a comp and let me hear it. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, do a comp, a vocal comp. Now, so very quickly I put something together, really quickly. Uh -huh. It wasn't good, but it was uh -huh. go, went from one end to the other. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say a vocal yes, comp? Yes, yes. Okay. Pieces of various takes together for exactly. one good take. Put yeah. together, yeah. Mm -hmm. I had some notes, but it, I knew it wasn't particularly good anyway. Made a, a copy for her, and I said to the, there was a guy sitting, I said, can I, can I take this over? And he said to me, he goes, that's not how it works here. And I said, I don't understand. How does it work here? Mm -hmm. He said, you give it to me. I give it to the security guy. The security guy will take it to Whitney. Whitney will listen when she's ready, and then you'll get input. And I said, oh, my gosh. I said, that's how it works here, is it? Yeah, yeah he goes, that's how it works. Here. I said, well, it's funny because we don't work that way. <sighs> I said, Hef, take the tape off. We're going. So he wound oh. the tape off. We packed the tapes up and got in the car and left. Oh, what a Just nightmare. Left nightmare it was never went and back then, are you kidding me no never went back why well, do you know uh, if they then, she made you come back and do something else okay no no i wouldn't go back that was it uh, but it, it didn't end there oh because we got the vocal did the mix mix sounded pretty good sent it to clive which you have to understand had to be couriered at the time mm. he gets the mix and then i get a phone call from clive who I've worked with quite a lot by this point and met a lot of times. I had some kind of relationship with him. And he said, uh, I've got some mixed notes here. And he had a whole bunch of people in the room whose job was to pick holes in the mix. Of course. Right. And yeah. the, he gave me these notes. I didn't understand the notes. It wasn't things that were, it was stuff like, turn the hi-hat up half a dB. Turn what? the, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was this these intricate little notes. And I kept all the notes. And basically, this went on six, five or six times, right? Courier the mix out. Yes. More notes, right? Oh, At the end, it was nothing. Yeah. yeah. So I sent in the original mix. Of course you did. <laughs> he just and wanted to feel that. like it had his, his thumbprint on it. I have he no idea. Say, you know? No idea. Anyway, so oh, that man. was that. Oh. Whitney Houston.
Did you interact at all with Penny Marshall, who I believe directed that movie? She's also no. not with us anymore. Okay. Okay. I didn't know if she had a say in all of this too at, at any point. Um, but you you know, Annie and I uh, did a song for Francis Ford Coppola for uh, that vampire. Love, it was called oh, Love Song for a Vampire. That's Dracula. right. Was yeah, it Dracula? Dracula. Yeah, Bram Stoker's yeah. Dracula. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, did you and, work? And, so, did you interact with Francis then? Yes, I did. Oh, for boy. half a day. Uh huh. Half a day on the phone, uh, and what was interesting was, uh, uh, you know, his films are are they not second to none? I mean, the I, guy's I, amazing. Of course, know Great, Godfather's greatest movie ever made. Yeah. So, yeah. He, he, right. What a privilege to talk to him. But I didn't understand what the fuck he was talking about when he was talking about the song. For a whole afternoon, we were talking about what he wanted and didn't want on this song, and I had not a clue. We uh-huh. had a song. We were going to finish it off and send it to him. I don't, but half a day on the phone about it. I was absolutely zombified by the end of the call. And, and whatever. I think the truth was he didn't want the song. Oh, maybe. He didn't want a little pop song in his movie. Yeah, I could see that, and he, I, I can as well. It was a uh, weird idea, and yeah. he hid it at the end of the credits mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in mono. Yeah, in mono. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's usually what they do. Um, okay. Oh gosh, this is so delicious. I'm going to throw three names at you. You tell me who you want to talk about. Wherever there's a good story. Uh, I have Rod Stewart, Spanner in the Works on my list. I have Johnny Marr, which is on your website, but I don't know what you did with Johnny Marr. And then I have um, Cher. You worked with Cher. Yeah. Is there a good story among any of those? Yeah, there's no story with Rod Stewart. I think I play guitar for Trevor. Oh, okay. Okay. That's it. Uh, Johnny Marr. There isn't really a story apart from we got on. So we are the most unlikely couple, but hit it off really well. We did. I think I've done two movies very okay. closely with him. Okay. And uh, one, one movie, uh, would it have been Spider-Man? It might have been a Spider-Man movie. He and I were thrust into a room for three weeks together to come up with a load of stuff and we laughed we basically laughed for three everyone i've talked to who knows him says he's like the nicest greatest guy greatest guy i've got nothing but great things to say about him having said that i i always get the feeling with him 
that if he didn't run and eat meat, he'd be a violent fucker. Really? But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, because uh, he's, he's kind of, he could be edgy, you know? Really? He's, really? Yeah. He, he, he is, do you know the Gallagher? Oh, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, Johnny has an edge. I can see if you push the wrong buttons, you don't want to be there. But I, I, he and I have always, always got on really well. We did Spider-Man and Bond together and, and got never great. ever had a crossword. Oh, good. That's great. Just laughed. Uh, Cher, Cher, my God, Cher. Yeah. 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 Loads of stories about Cher. I bet. Uh, I, I, yeah. Well, and so here's the deal. I got into this. Um, some friends posted something on Twitter recently about how she, her not being inducted or even nominated for the Hall of Fame is like the biggest snub in history. And I replied saying, mm, I don't think Cher belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it sparked this debate on Twitter. She chimed in herself saying, I could give a fuck about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I do what I do. And I invented auto-tune and all this stuff. So me and some friends recorded this last weekend a debate whether she belonged in the rock hall i say no and a couple of them said yes the rock and roll uh, <laughs> uh, on whether she should be in it or whether yeah or, or well, the does rock, does share belong in the rock and roll hall of fame does the rock and roll hall of fame have any relevance <laughs> no but it's funny it's fun to talk about it's okay. fun to debate. so on yeah. the basis it has no relevance whatsoever nor does she in the rock and roll hall of fame how could she possibly oh it's so funny yeah i yeah. agree and, i agree and and also i her response is perfect uh -huh. when when i i got very close with her and her uh -huh. then manager Bill Summer, who unfortunately died quite recently. Mm. I loved Cher. I kind of fell in love with Cher. She was, she was brilliant. Hardcore, but yeah. that was what was so brilliant about her. At one point, she told me a story that was so funny. It was, it was, uh, she was doing a show. I can't remember what the show was. My, in, in, you know, we have these, I don't know about now, but Saturday night variety shows or Sunday night variety shows. And she was topping the bill. Right. And I think it was Saturday night because she said she had to go on the Thursday, tell them what she wanted, go on the Friday for a rehearsal. And then the Saturday was the show. Right. So it was a three day thing. And she said, uh, we were talking about, uh, actually I have to wind back a bit because when I first met her, it was in this place, Willsden, where my mm -hmm. studio was and is. And I remember looking out the window and seeing a black Rolls Royce with silver Swiss number plates pull up uh, with Cher getting out in a full length fur coat, <laughs> the black hair and dark glasses and thinking, this looks fucking weird in Willsden. <laughs> There's something up here. Anyway, so she showed up and she's sitting in, in the, I had a sitting room, right? And she's in the mm. sitting room and the manager, my manager's there, her manager's there. And there. And then we, we haven't really got into talking about anything. And, and, and so Cher says to me, you know, she's very um, direct yes. when she talks. Yeah. So she says to me, so what do you want from me? Mm -hmm. 
I said, well, you can make the fucking tea for a start. And, <laughs> and she loved this. She absolutely loved this. <laughs> I bet because, she would, yeah. Yeah, because she's, yeah. right, now it leads on to the story, yes. Yes. right, which is that she showed up on the Thursday, and she's telling me this story in context. It wasn't, it wasn't her telling me what she was like. It was uh -huh. part of a bigger thing. And they're all sort of licking her, you know, and uh -huh. ooh, being very, very obsequious. Yes. Yeah. And they said, what would you like? What would you like on the stage? And it just so happened, she's telling me this, that she'd been given a Harley Davidson and there were only two on the planet. She had one. It was a one-off, but there were two of them. She had one and a guy in Canada had one <laughs> and, and she didn't know who it was. And she said, I would like Harley Davidson on the stage a very specific model and she says the model that she has right doesn't tell him that she has one uh -huh. and they go no problem we'll <laughs> deal with it right come the friday she shows up how are you getting on and uh they're they're all freaking out because they uh -huh. can't find this motorbike <laughs> right uh, yeah 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 we'll have it for you by tomorrow uh, you better you yeah. know you better have it <laughs> right. come the saturday it's there right they've yeah they've what? got it and she sees it and bursts into floods of, just laughs herself yeah. silly and said i was taking the piss oh. <laughs> yeah so <sighs> she plays this game with yeah. people who are like that with her which i yeah. think is very funny oh that's great she's an icon no doubt she deserves she should be in like life's hall of fame but i wouldn't have put her in the rock hall of fame but yeah, anyway i agree yeah. she's just a fantastic human being yes yes I, I, out of all the artists i've worked with there's something about her the clarity mm. of talking with her being with her is above and beyond all other artists somehow i believe it i believe it just so clear that's great that's good she to used know. to come in she'd come in all the time i bought this chair for her i called it the share chair <laughs> and, and it was this <laughs> this sort of big chair that you put out and she'd sit there in glasses knitting she uh -huh. loved being in our studio i think there were three of us making the record greg penny trevor and myself and i got the lion's share of it uh-huh uh, because she liked me right and she'd hang out there all the time oh, so i've got to go and see trevor now and she'd go off and then come back you know <laughs> and, and i remember the first time i met her it was her manager it, that time in when she showed up and i said make a tea that wasn't when we made the record that was billy saying well now we have to get a deal and he called me about two offers he'd had for a deal. This is quite interesting, actually. Uh -huh. One was with the global, with RCA and one with Warners. Okay. I suggested Warners because uh -huh. there was a guy there called Rob Dickens and Rob <clears throat> Dickens was an ex-publisher. He ran Warners and I said, that's what you need. You need a guy running the company who's into songs. You need a songs guy. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll get all the producers you need. That's not mm -hmm. the issue. It's the songs. So I suggest Rob Dickens and, and Billy had them on the hook and RCA. And he said, um, 
so I've got these two. You know Rob Dickens, but I think, would you do me a favor and talk to the guy at RCA? So, of course, and I was honored to help. Mm -hmm. you know, what a mm -hmm. nice thing that he called me. What's his name? Heinz Hen. What is he? He's the global head of A&R. Okay. I I'll um, call him. So I called him, and I said, for some reason, Billy Samoth wanted me to call you to see what, what you would do with share, you know, your vision for share, because he's got two record companies, and I, I suppose he wants you to, I said, I'm sorry to put you in this position, but he kind of wants you to sell yourself to me, which I'm very embarrassed about. But yeah. so he goes, okay, I can tell you really easily. I don't forget Annie Lennox was on that label at the time. Mm -hmm. So this is his, his pitch to me. He said, if I was taking Annie Lennox out for dinner, I'd rent a limo and I'd put a dinner suit on and I'd pick her up and I'd take her to a fine restaurant and we'd have fine wine and beautiful candlelit dinner and it would be very sophisticated and then we'd make slow sensual love <laughs> now if i were taking share out for dinner i'd just fuck her <laughs> i went okay i've got it <laughs> call billy sign with rob dickens <laughs> which he he did right Good. so they sign and I'm called in for a meeting, whatever, because uh -huh. Cher, Billy, and I were going to make an album together. Uh -huh. But Rob Dickens had a, a other. He 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 calls me in, and he had it was in Kensington. I remember the office. I only went there the once. Trevor knew Rob really well because his his label was distributed through ZTT was distributed okay. through uh, Warner's, and I'd left the the fold by then. So even though Trevor and I were on really good terms, we weren't working together. So I hadn't really come across Rob and this was my first time meeting him and I'm called up and I'm sitting in the waiting room. He's got the whole floor mm -hmm. and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and there's a corridor and the corridor is where I am an office for his assistant, a loo kitchen, maybe, and then his office. Okay. So it's like a 10 second walk down the corridor right. and he walks up to me and he says, really nice to meet you. He shakes my hand. He says, so what, what are your ideas? And I said to him, well, I've been talking to him about, I think she should make some kind of dance record. Mm. And he goes, that's very interesting. And we're approaching a door. He goes, that's very interesting. Because we're making a rock record. As he opens the door, he says, Because we're making a rock record. Uh, 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 okay. okay. And I'm in this meeting suddenly. Right. I, in other words, I had naught seconds to respond. Right. Anyway, uh, we make the record. The record comes out and does fine. It, I only had one hit, and that was uh -huh. a song called One by One.
Which, I think you're right. Uh, whatever. And I don't think it did anything anywhere apart from... Uh, her rock period had kind of ended by then in her dance period. You could have been the guy who began the dance period and said you're Hello? the guy who ended the rock period. Yeah, but I knew what needed yes. to be done. Yes. You're right. I You're knew right. it. It was so obvious to me. Yeah. Yeah. Do not do rock. You've done it. Yeah. And it was cod rock. It uh -huh. was not, it wasn't, even uh, though it's successful, yeah, it wasn't it was, good. It was like a female Bon Jovi or whatever. Yeah. It was that yeah, kind of stuff. cheap. Yes. It was a yes. bit cheap. Uh huh. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, we made the record. Whatever happened, happened. Uh -huh. There was one uh -huh. great song on it called It's a Man's Man's World, mm -hmm. which I always, I, I kind of like the idea of that, which she called the album after. Mm, that's right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and the next album was the dance album. The dance one, yeah. That yeah. got all the accolades. So, wow. so he, Rob, you know, he went, <laughs> oh, dance album, okay. <laughs> Do that next time. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Steve, uh, this was so much fun. I could keep going and going, but I, I'll leave you alone after this. Thank you so much for talking with me. I love you so much. Your work that you've put into this world has made so many lives better, including mine. And I am so eternally grateful for you for that. Oh, thank you for sweet. everything. It is true. Well, so, thank you. All right. There you have it. Steven Lipson. Again, I loved him. And that's, it's going to be hard to dislodge this conversation in my top 10 list of the year. I mean, this is exactly the kind of interaction you love to have with the producers that come on this show. So, so, so grateful for Steven. Anyway, um, we got into the both of the propaganda albums, but I don't think we ended up playing anything off of Secret Wish. And we should have because that's it didn't come up. The names didn't necessarily come up, but that's one of my favorite albums ever. So let's end it with one of the best songs off that album, P Machinery. Now, um, I hope you listened to the Trevor Horn episode from last week. I hope you listened to the Tony K episode from Yes, uh, we did a deep dive of Big Generator. That came out, came out yesterday or the day before. So there's been a lot of similar content, uh, you know, content relating to a similar group of people, similar place and time uh, recently, and it's all beautiful. In fact, I think we've covered just about everybody who was in the Trevor Horn camp, except for Ann Dudley. All the major players we've had on the show. 
I guess I got to get Ann now, on here now, too. Anyway, huge thanks as... Oh, 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 before I get to that, next week. Next week's guest is the lead singer of one of the preeminent new wave ba bands of the 80s. They're primarily known for maybe, depending on how much attention you were paying, one to four hits in the States, many, many more in Europe. One giant one that wasn't really a huge hit at the time, but it has become a perennial. You still hear it all the time. Pays all the bills. It's great stuff. Anyway, the front man is going to be here next week. That's our next episode. Now, huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thanks, buddy, for being my partner in crime. You guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. Start by the machine